0: Amen. Haggai chapter 2, four verses this morning as we conclude our effort to find the relevance of an ancient prophetic message for us in our modern day. This morning, we consider the hope of God's reign. We've rehearsed some crystal clear scriptures in our affirmation of faith We know in our heads that God is in control. He rules over nations and every detail of our lives. We're building this study on these other short, pointed messages that Haggai has given to God's people. His first message was the hope of proper priorities. Consider your ways. You're fixing up your own house, but you're not fixing up the house of the Lord. You're serving your own agenda, but you're not serving the agenda of the Lord. And there's hope there. There's hope when we seek first the kingdom and we rest in the fact that God will take care of the rest. We looked at his second message. They got started in the work, and it seemed like it just didn't measure up to the old temple. And we saw in that message the hope of significance. Not in some kind of psychological self-esteem lesson, but in the reality of seeing who we are in Christ and seeing our purpose as his. Hearing God say, I am with you. And that making all the difference in any sense of meaning or significance that we need. Last time we considered the hope of holiness, as we realized that with holy hearts, then the the work of our hands can be stamped as holy as well. God wants our hearts. He calls us to holiness, and in that pursuit of holiness, there is great hope for us as his people. This morning, in familiar language the shaking of the earth, he's already used that language in his early message, and then in some unfamiliar language, the language of a signet ring. I want us to see this as the foundation of our hope in God's reign. I don't think I have to go out on some limb and speculate that someone here today, if not all of us, need this kind of hope, hope that God is in control. How else really can you say, be still, my soul? Do do I need to rehearse all of the attacks on our minds for why our soul would not be still? Clearly, we need this hope that God will make his rule known to all men one day and that God is ruling now. You need this hope of God's reign when you watch the news. You need this hope of God's reign when you're reminded of the radical cultural agendas that are sweeping through the courts. Morality is, 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 is being overrun. It is no longer... A majority uh, but the culture is winning you say what kind of message is this <laughs> well it's a message that steers us to the hope in God's reign and not to any other hope that we could long for work for pray for you need this hope The hope of God's reign when it seems that the devil is devouring, as Peter said, at will. And it just seems like the gospel isn't working on your neighbor, on that loved one, on that co-worker. Those are the big ideas or examples of them that remind us we need hope. But to be honest, sometimes you need hope when you oversleep your alarm and the day starts off on a bad note. Sometimes we need the hope of God's reign, his providential rule over the affairs of every aspect of our lives, when you spill your coffee on your shirt, or when a child's sickness keeps you from those plans that you were looking forward to. The little problems in life or the big ideological conflicts in life all need this hope that God reigns. There are times we throw up our hands and say, what is this world coming to? And we have to remind ourselves God's in control of Russian politics and Ukrainian wars, African famines. And then there's other times we just say, I didn't need this today. And we need to remember that God is in control of your little corner of the world. In this final message, Haggai reveals this hope of God's reign. It's just that he presents it to us in these two promised events that we need to wrestle with a little bit to understand. Now, I want to point you to the text in verses 22 and 23 to try to identify right there in your seat two major things that God says he's going to do because that's the foundation of the text we're trying to ask what does it say so we want to identify that and then what does that mean for us all these years later how does that message help us but I want you to kind of see that even here in a in a minor prophet you could read this short text and see God says he's going to do two significant things. Look at the first. The message comes to Zerubbabel in verse 21, the governor of Judah. And this is what God says. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. There's the first thing God says he's going to do. Now we might have to wrestle with it to know what does this mean? But any of you could read that and say, God said he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And that means the nations in it. It's like taking a snow globe, that little scene in that snow globe, and giving it a shake, and it stirs it all up. Well, imagine having a snow globe with the whole world in there and shaking it up. That's the picture here. The heavens and the earth, God's creation, he's going to shake the heavens and earth. Well, what does that shaking mean? Well, we get some understanding when he says he's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Now, that's familiar language in the prophets there are visions the prophets have had like Daniel or Ezekiel and they they talk about thrones and kingdoms to come and this one will overthrow that one and then there'll be other ones but they always have their eye on this one last great kingdom that will not be overthrown as every other kingdom of the world has been so That language of overthrowing kingdoms, of destroying the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, throwing chariots and their riders down, well, that takes us back to the Exodus when the world empire of Egypt is dismissed by the little finger of God, the Egyptian sorcerers called it. And the riders and their chariots are drowned in the sea as God's people passed on dry land. This overthrowing, this destroying, this shaking of the nations is the first of God's promised events that will display his reign. The first event that I want us to note in Haggai's message is the judgment of the nations. God's promise was this. Though his people Israel knew very well what it meant to be dominated by a kingdom, first the Babylonian kingdom, now the Medo-Persian kingdom, God is telling them, I am over all of those kingdoms and they will be accountable to me. In this, you see, is, is the hope we're supposed to find in God's reign. That no matter what I see in the strength of God's enemies, it is, it is my flawed perception or my lack of faith to call to mind that God is ruling over them presently and will one day make that rule dominantly known. The world dictators right now are giving little credence to the sovereignty of God and his ability to shake the nations. But one day, that will indeed be the case. They will see him as Lord of all. God tells Zerubbabel, this governor of Judah, not a king, they're not their own people. They're still under the thumb of Cyrus in the Medo-Persian Empire or Darius now. So he he's not a great somebody. He's a makeshift ruler of kind of a makeshift nation. But God doesn't want Zerubbabel thinking small thoughts. So tell Zerubbabel, I am about to shake the nations. Tell Zerubbabel the plan is still moving forward. This isn't a step back. We're good in our human frailty at thinking it's a step back. But God wants Zerubbabel to know, no, I am about to. Another step has been taken. We're making progress towards that one kingdom that will rule all kingdoms. This shaking of the nations would happen in Zerubbabel's day, in part. The Medo-Persian Empire is not long for the world It's about to be overthrown by the lightning dominance of Alexander the Great. Greece would rule the world soon. But as quickly as Greece comes to power, they will fall too. And the Caesars will take over and the mighty Roman Empire will dominate for a few hundred years. So even in Zerubbabel's day... Kingdoms would be shaken and overthrown and toppled. Greece came to power for a reason in God's agenda. And then he was done with them and set them aside, cast them down, and brought Rome to power. And then he cast them aside. And he continues working in the affairs of nations and humanity to accomplish his ultimate plan, the establishment of his kingdom it should not surprise us to read in Matthew 27 of the shaking of the earth when God puts the spotlight of darkness on his son Jesus crucified. You see, God's promise back to Zerubbabel was, I will implement my kingdom And it will be so dominant and invasive that it will be like shaking the whole earth. Well, as that kingdom begins to unfold, as this kingdom that grows out of the gospel and the salvation of sinners unfolds right there at Calvary, God reminds us with a shaking of the earth, this is my plan. I said I would shake the earth and bring about the salvation of my people. So as we come upon this celebration of the season of the Passover and the resurrection of Christ on that historical day, and we read those accounts of the crucifixion, the tombs being opened and the earth shaking and darkness covering the earth, the temple veil being torn in two, these are all just little details that remind us God's agenda is moving forward. He is accomplishing the salvation of his people. Zerubbabel saw it in his day. We see it in the shaking of the earth at the crucifixion. And Hebrews 12 tells us of a final shaking when God will shake heavens and earth, nations will collapse, and all humanity will be left on their knees, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And he says this there in Hebrews 12. We have received an unshakable kingdom. Every other kingdom. Remember Haggai's prophecy falters. Because when God shakes it it crumbles. But we belong to the king of kings. And his kingdom is unshakable. So when that final shaking in Hebrews happens. We're standing sure on Christ the sure and steady anchor. We don't shake. We have the hope of God's reign. Remember, this is the big language. This is the big picture. But we would argue from the greater to the lesser that if God can control the affairs of nations, he can take care of your office manager. He can take care of your transmission. He can take care of that dwindling bank account. You're watching your investments and retirement accounts dwindle by tens of thousands of dollars. God's in charge. Whatever, whatever is tempting you this week to, to chaos, to panic, come back to an ancient prophecy When God says, I will shake the nations, but one thing will be sure. My church, the kingdom of God. That's what he says first. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. But in verse 23, he says he's going to do something else. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, Declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. We see God's reign in the judgment of nations. But secondly, I would say that we see God's reign in the triumph of the Messiah, the triumph of the Messiah. You say, okay, we read about Zerubbabel and a signet ring. So how do we get to Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? Well, let's talk about this signet ring. It was used by the king or by the king's closest servants to seal the instructions of the king. Maybe they would write it out on the scroll, roll it up, put a blob of melted wax and, and press that ring. It might be a ring on the finger or like a, a cylinder with the round end that they'd wear around their neck and they could, they could press that down and, and seal that. This was authoritative because this comes from the wearer of that signet ring. It speaks to authority It speaks to power to accomplish whatever is inside this manifest, whatever is inside this communication. It was even used to stamp the possessions of the king so that if his chariots or horses or barns or sacks of grain were stored somewhere, they would often stamp even those things so that everyone would know that belongs to the king. So, when the word of the Lord comes to Zerubbabel and says, I will make you like a signet ring, it is calling to mind God's authority, God's power, God's agenda, his will that he wants to accomplish. And he's saying, I'm going to do that through this one who is my servant. Zerubbabel, I'll make you like that signet ring. You will represent my authority, my power, my agenda. Now, Zerubbabel, the guy who lived right here in our story, did that. He represented God's authority. He was a leader for God's people, called a servant. But he led them in a path that God wanted them to go with the help of Haggai's preaching, Zechariah's preaching. So it was true of Zerubbabel. He bore some authority and he sought to lead God's people in the right direction. It's just that Zerubbabel didn't do this well, and we also have the dilemma that this Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, is the grandson of Jeconiah, one of the worst kings of Israel, so bad that God said, I will curse this line, and no son of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne again. And immediately, we, we panic because we think, wait a minute, God had promised to David that a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. Now, the Israelites may have thought that meant the dynasty of the nation of Israel would exist forever, and they were sorely disappointed. But ultimately, God was promising much more. He was promising another son of David, that would come and establish this same kingdom that is kind of being described here, the kingdom that would last forever. So we're stuck between hearing this prophecy and thinking what was Zerubbabel hearing and thinking and fulfilling, but what's the grander theme yet to occur? So here we have Zerubbabel, God's servant, he's called. The chosen one, he's called. a representative of God's power and authority. He's the signet ring. He's that seal that God is doing something. But this ruler Zerubbabel, in a cursed line, who could not be king, he could only be governor, this ruler Zerubbabel serves as a type or a picture of what? Of a coming ruler, the coming servant the coming chosen one, the coming exact representation of God's authority and power. So this second promised event, though in kind of language that makes us stop and think for a moment, this second event reveals to us that God's reign is seen in the triumph of this coming king, the Messiah. In this coming servant king, God would reveal and accomplish his plan of redemption. Just as he accomplished his plan for his people through Zerubbabel, so he is going to accomplish his plan for his people through another son of David. So those are the words that the people heard in their day. God's going to shake nations, shake kingdoms, but establish one kingdom. That God is going to use his servant, his chosen leader, ruler, servant, to guide his people into righteousness. Thank you, Zerubbabel, but you're just a picture of a greater ruler to do that for us. So why do we have hope that God will reign just from a reading of Haggai? We read Haggai, 38 verses And we're supposed to come away with this hope in God's rule, in his reign. Why can we draw hope from this prophecy in Haggai? I offer you four reasons for this hope in God's reign in the world and in our individual lives this week. When stuff goes wrong, can I go to Haggai And find hope and comfort that God is in control. Number one, we have hope in God's reign because our God is Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts. Even in just verse 23, listen. On that day declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. If you've been listening in our reading of Haggai, you you see how in one verse we're reminded multiple times of who it is that is saying this. Specifically, with the use of the name, the Lord of hosts. 38 verses, 14 times God Reveals himself as the Lord of hosts. This God who commands angel armies. A king with a kingdom is the one who is speaking. The one kingdom that shakes all other kingdoms. And the king who rules it, that's who's speaking these words. We can come to Zechariah and hear of World kingdoms being shaken, but only one kingdom prevailing. And we can hear of a a coming ruler, servant, who will guide God's people into righteousness. And we can have hope because the one making these promises is the God of angel armies who knows no enemy of any significance. Nothing stands in his way. The God of angel armies is the one commanding this agenda. We're tempted to think in the world or in our little corner of it that things are out of control. Well, when that thought comes into your mind, sing again the question we posed this morning to each other. Who is like the Lord our God? Who can stand in his way? Who can thwart his plan? This is the process of going from scripture and by faith recognizing it can stabilize our lives when big things alarm us and when little things frustrate us. Who is like the Lord our God? We can have hope in God's reign because the one saying he will reign is the God of angel armies, the Lord Of hosts. Number two, we have hope in God's reign because our God is faithful to his covenant promises. Zerubbabel, grandson of Jeconiah. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, who is the son of Jeconiah or Coniah, as he might be described, the king whose line is cursed the king of whom God said no son would sit on the throne. And yet in Zerubbabel, in that cursed line, God is restating his intention to somehow fulfill his promise that a son of David would sit on the throne forever. And so in Matthew chapter 1, we find Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, in the very lineage, the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus. God, through the virgin birth, is going to skirt the curse of Jeconiah, completely fulfilling it. No son of Jeconiah would sit on the throne, and yet through that virgin birth, the son of Mary in the line of David would have a son, and that son, Jesus, would be that son of David to sit on the throne forever. God is faithful to his covenant promises, God is faithful to his character of mercy. Why do these people deserve a good king? They don't. Why do God's people deserve his favor, his grace? They don't. Why do we deserve to not be shaken when God judges the nations? Why will you deserve to hear, enter into the, Joy of your master. Why will you deserve to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? You won't, but God is faithful to his covenant promises. Number three, we hope in God's reign because the gospel is the power of God. You see, our story here is reminding us that in Jeconiah, the rebellion of a wicked king from David's line brought the curse of ruin and exile. Son of David, sinful king, led the people into unrighteousness. The result was exile into Babylon, 70 years of captivity, and never again would the nation of Israel be returned to its glory days. But the gospel reminds us that because of the obedience of a righteous king in the line of David, light and life would be given to all who believe. Instead of exile and ruin, light and life. Instead of a king who leads into unrighteousness, a king who leads to righteousness. And we're reminded that the gospel is alive and well. In three words that I underline in verse 22 Destroy the strength. God says, I'm going to shake the nations. I am about to destroy the strength of nations, of rulers, of chariots, of horses. Think on that for a moment. God destroys the strength of wickedness. It may be the manifestation of wickedness through wicked people doing wicked things. So the the enemies of God's people and their chariots are cast into the sea. But it's much bigger than that. God destroying the strength of wickedness. We sing of it. We did just a few weeks ago. He breaks... The power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest one clean. His blood availed for me. That's what Haggai was predicting. It's not just the, the, the evildoers will be punished. It's that the strength of evil will be broken. He will destroy the strength of evil. He'll take the teeth Out of the accusation, you're a sinner, you deserve judgment. Because he's going to make a way through Christ for us to say, no condemnation for me. There is no accusation that sticks anymore. Not because I'm righteous, but because I'm robed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm hidden in his righteousness. No accusation sticks against the perfection of Christ Satan is known in the New Testament as the great accuser of the brethren. His great goal is to make us look bad, to make us look like we should get what we deserve, judgment, wrath, forever. And yet the scriptures are careful to tell us in Hebrews that God will look on Christ and his sacrifice, that spotless lamb's perfect blood, And he will see us as washed in that blood, as forgiven, and therefore as deserving of heaven. Because we are in Christ, who who merits, who deserves, who is worthy of all of the blessing of the Father. I know we don't deserve anything yes because in our minds when we say that we're recognizing we've sinned against a holy God grace has intervened but see who you are in Christ Jesus now and recognize then that God sees you as righteous as a joint heir with Jesus an heir of an inheritance worthy to be given to Christ and worthy to be given to you you're a joint heir It speaks not to your sufficiency or perfection, but to Christ's. And it makes you wonder, why would he let me join him? It's the wonder of grace. As God tells Zerubbabel, I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. We hope in God's reign, because the gospel is the power of God. He destroys the strength of evil. Friends, don't doubt the gospel's power to affect salvation. Some of you struggle with, with assurance of your own salvation. And it's often because of sin. It, it contaminates our heart. First John warns us of this. Your heart condemns you. Hear what God says. Confess and forsake that sin to find that, that freedom, that, that cleansing that reminds you, I, I really am a child of God. Sometimes we doubt the power of the gospel to save those that are still in unbelief. But mark these words. We serve the God who says, I will destroy the strength of the one who is blinded our sons or daughters. That relative that you've prayed for for years to be saved, come to Haggai and find the hope in the reign of the God who says, I destroy the strength of blindness and darkness. The New Testament is abundantly clear when it tells us Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So if his blinding, captivating work is still going on, then so is the war against it. So take heart. Rest in this God who destroys strength. Pray, plead for God's mercy for those loved ones, and believe that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And Christians, live in the freedom that God has won for you at Calvary. As we heard of the many sins that could be confessed, In our prayer of confession, we are reminded that besetting sin still creeps in on the lives of those who are trying to run the race of faith. And our text reminds us that the strength has been destroyed. You are not a slave to sin. You do not need to sin this week. Oh, I assure you, I know that the temptation is strong. The draw of sin is strong. Its promises seem to ring loud and clear. But you do not have to yield yourself to sin. Some of you feel trapped by anger, by fear, by lust. You need not be. Come to Haggai and find the hope of God's rule over your heart. He has destroyed the strength of wickedness. So let us live like it. Let us live like sin has no power over us, except the power we give to it. Let us believe that the work of Christ was sufficient to make a spectacle of his enemies at the cross, Colossians tells us. Finally, we have hope in God's reign because Christ is king. He is the truest signet ring. If we're looking for the clearest expression of the authority, the power, and the agenda of God, we see it in Christ who came to do the will of his father. So does Jesus sit at the right hand of the Father waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool? Is that the posture of Christ? In complete peace, in complete control, in complete dominance, is that what Christ is doing? Will every knee bow to Jesus? Is that true? Will every tongue confess that he is Lord with absolute authority over them? The answers are yes, yes, and yes. Therefore, we have hope. We should. If we lose, lose sight of this reign of God, this lasting kingdom, and this coming king, then... Life gets a bit topsy-turvy and and we panic and we're anxious about things and we fret and the economy and the politics and the next election supply chains and everything else that factors in to living life in a groaning creation. What's our hope? It's a theology it's a belief. It's something God has said, and we say, I believe that. That God is in control. That he reigns. That Christ is king. The wrong shall indeed fail, the right shall indeed prevail. Why? Because the king is coming. The king who said, I will shake the nations, having destroyed their strength. And I will draw my chosen ones to myself. This is all the hope we have. He hasn't said anything else. But it sure seems like if we'll believe what he has said, we'll find hope. Hope that comes in the divine providential reign of the Lord of hosts. So to borrow from the psalmist, why are you so discouraged? When it is yours to hope in God, Christ, the sure and steady anchor, means that I can say to myself, be still, my soul. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, means that I can say, the Lord is my salvation. Let let this world rage, Psalm 2. But who is like the Lord our God, whose kingdom rules over all? Heavenly Father, thank you for an ancient text. Thank you for preserving your word for us to read today in a language we can understand. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides us into truth. Thank you for being faithful to your people thousands of years ago on a mountaintop in Israel as they rebuilt a city and a temple, and your promises were true and your faithfulness was proved And thank you that still today your promises are true and your faithfulness is being proved to us as well. Lord, increase our faith this week. And in that increase of faith, may it be to the decrease of doubt or fear, anxiety, chaos. May there be a peace that comes, a steadiness as we anchor ourselves to Christ, the anchor of our souls, as we remember that our kingdom allegiance is to a kingdom unshakable. Our allegiance is to a king seated on a throne, lovingly caring for his people, sovereignly bringing the affairs of the world to a conclusion to a culmination that will look exactly like a triumph in war, where enemies and allies alike bow the knee to the conquering king. And Lord, we know our hearts long for that day. To be able to say to every worldview and every false religion and every rejection of truth, to, to say, I told you so. I told you my King Jesus ruled. I told you he was coming again. Lord, give us that kind of courage and resolve to stand. Having studied this prophecy of Haggai, we need hope. By your word, we can have it today, the hope in your divine reign. So lead us from this place into the real stuff of daily schedules. Our, our, Our eyes may not even get to world affairs this week. We'll be so consumed with what's going on all around us. We need to know you reign there as well. Bring peace and calm and faith to every heart as we go from this place so that your faithfulness would be esteemed by us all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.